Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for joining us on Heritage Events Live. We're delighted to welcome you to our policy pulse on Biden's bureaucratic plans for American families, healthcare. Please welcome Doug Badger, Senior Fellow in Domestic Policy Studies at the Heritage Foundation. We hope you enjoy the program. Thank you, Catherine, and uh, welcome everybody. Um, I'd like to start by introducing uh, Dr. Brian Blaze, a Senior Fellow at the Galen Institute and um, a former uh, Trump Administration Health uh, Policy Advisor. We're going to talk today about the American Families Plan and particularly the proposal to make Obamacare premium subsidies uh, permanent. As you know, in the American Rescue Plan Act, ARPA, the Congress temporarily increased Obamacare premium subsidies. They did this in two ways. First, for people who already are eligible for subsidies, people with incomes between one and four times the federal policy uh, level, now get larger subsidies. Secondly, for the first time, premium subsidies are available to people regardless of income. That means people in the top two income quintiles get government subsidized Obamacare premiums. Now, why did Congress do this on a temporary basis? This expires in December of 2022. They did it because they assumed that millions of people lost coverage last year because of government lockdowns. The fact is, that's false. Uh, my heritage colleague Ed Heiselmeyer uh, published a paper last month based on reviews of insurer regulatory filings. It turns out that 5.7 million more people had coverage in December 2020 than in December 2019. So far from millions of people losing coverage, people actually gained coverage uh, last year. So the temporary expansion was a solution in search of a problem, but now the question is making it permanent. Um, Brian, there are a lot of uninsured uh, people out there. Will the expanded Obamacare premium subsidies substantially reduce the number of uninsured people. Hey, Doug, uh, thanks for inviting me to participate. Uh, thanks to Heritage for putting this on. You know, according to the Congressional Budget Office, it's not going to. They don't expect that, it, that this uh, these new spending on the subsidies is gonna reduce the uninsured by that much. And if you really look at who benefits, uh, what the changes are, there's sort of four groups. One, it's people that already have subsidies that are purchasing in the exchanges. They're going to get a larger subsidy. That's the vast majority of people. Um, almost everybody who buys in the exchanges now is subsidized. And those subsidies cover you know, three quarters of the premium, uh, at least on average. Um, you'll have some movement of individuals that are unsubsidized right now in the individual market to now qualifying for a subsidy. You'll have uh, some a very limited uh, projected loss of employer coverage um, to subsidized enrollment because the uh, the subsidies are only for two years. CBO expects that it's going to be pretty minimal. Uh, about 100,000 people will replace employer coverage. 
with um, uh, new subsidized coverage. And then you've got people who would otherwise be uninsured. According to CBO in uh, 2022, uh, these expanded subsidies will bring in about 1.3 million people who would otherwise be uninsured at a cost of around $23 billion for the whole subsidy expansion. So when you're sort of doing a rough cost benefit analysis, uh, we're going to have spending on the order of about $17,000 per person who is newly insured because of the subsidy expansion. Well, that's a pretty inefficient way to go about it. I'm sure these people would rather take a $17,000 check than a premium subsidy. But, but uh, the central point here, as Brian makes, is that um, this generally benefits people who already have coverage. And in particular, it benefits people who uh, have fairly high incomes. As, uh, as I mentioned at the outset, people in the top two income quintiles now get uh, premium subsidies. Kaiser Family Foundation did a breakdown of average subsidies by income level. And they estimate that the average subsidy for a household with incomes four to six times federal poverty level, so we're well above median income, is about $2,600 per year. That is six or seven times as much as the increased subsidies to people at 100 to 150% of poverty. And even when you get above six times the poverty level, the average subsidy is about $960 per household, uh, which is two and a half times the increase for people with to 100, 150% of poverty. Brian, you've done a real a good analysis of this and kind of broken, broken it down and, and have some illustrations of how big these subsidies are for people in the highest income quintiles. Yeah, so thank you uh, for putting the figure on the screen. And I should say one thing I forgot to mention in my first answer, Doug, is that CBO projects that 75% of the uh, subsidy spending is pure crowd out. It's gonna go to people that already have coverage. So it does nothing to reduce the number of people without insurance. Um, now, how are these subsidies distributed? So this figure is from a paper uh, that I published through the Galen Institute a few months ago. And um, it shows sort of the marginal increase in the premium tax credits. And there's sort of three striking things. Um, so. so there are, there are six trend lines. The trend lines correspond to six households. So you've got a 30-year-old single household, 45-year-old single household, 60-year-old single household. And then I have those same households um, if they were families of four. And what it shows is the first thing, the subsidy um, uh, increase is tremendous at just over 400% of the poverty line. So the added benefit here for families, uh, for individuals at 400% of the poverty line is very large and it gradually um, phases out. The second thing that is pretty clear here is that the subsidies are much more generous for older households. This is because of the way the premium tax credit is structured. It limits the amount of income that a household has to pay for a benchmark premium. And because older households um, face higher premiums, uh, they consequently qualify for bigger subsidies. Um, the third thing really to point out here is how regressive this is. 
So you can see households um, that make many times the federal poverty line that are going to get significantly more benefit from the subsidy expansion than households um, with income at like two times the poverty line, for instance. So just if you look at um, uh, uh, the sort of 45-year-old family of four line, if they make $40,000, this subsidy expansion benefits them by about $1,600. You make, have that household make $100,000, they're going to receive benefit of $2,000. If they make $150,000, they're getting benefit of $5,000. A 60-year-old family of four, again, $40,000, um, their benefit is the same, $1,600. Uh, $100,000, their benefit is $2,000. Now, what if that 60-year-old household makes $150,000? Their premium tax credit is going to be $17,000. If that household makes $300,000, they still qualify for a $5,000 subsidy. Um, and this is the case where premiums are average. In areas of the country where premiums are very high, the subsidies are enormous. So this is some uh, fooling around that I did with the Kaiser Family Foundation subsidy calculator. And so everyone can do this on their own. They put in the zip code that I entered there. Um, and it's a two 60-year-old adults and uh, uh, children age 20, 18, and 16. Uh, that is Prescott, Arizona. The benchmark premium, now this is a just sort of underlying problem with the ACA, right? Any uh, program that would lead to a benchmark premium of $51,000, and that's for a 70% actuarial value plan, right? So there's still 30% um, projected cost sharing in that plan. Uh, it's $51,000 for that benchmark plan. Look at the subsidies that that family qualifies for. If they make $150,000, their subsidy is over $38,000. If they make $350,000, their subsidy exceeds $21,000. Take them to half a million dollars a year, they're still qualifying for a subsidy of $8,500. Their subsidy actually doesn't phase out until that household earns more than $600,000. There's other examples like that too. Um, there's an example of Kay County, Oklahoma, uh, that just take a 60-year-old uh, uh, couple, no dependents. They earn half a million dollars a year. They face a benchmark premium of $50,000, um, and they would qualify for a premium tax credit in excess of $7,000. So uh, the big winners from the temporary expansion, and obviously if um, uh, the proposal to make those permanent are some very high uh, income households. The other big winners, and I don't know that we pay enough attention to this, are insurance companies. We remember back early in Obamacare about how insurance companies were losing money. Uh, but somewhere along the way, uh, they started to recognize that since government subsidies rise dollar for dollar with premiums, they should have a business model that's geared to uh, subsidize people, raise the premiums, get a bigger check uh, from the federal government. And that's working out very, very well for them. Again, looking at Kaiser Family Foundation last year, the average per member per month margin in the individual market was $143. That means the premiums they collected exceeded the benefits they paid out by $143 per member per month. 
that's 80% more than the margin they made in the group health market. Now, what's the big difference between the individual and the group health market? There are several, but one very important one is in the individual market, the government is paying a big chunk of the premium. So the, the people buying insurance don't care about what the total premium is. What they care about is what their premium is net of subsidies. So looking at CMS data for the first six months of 2020, nearly 74% of revenue to insurance companies selling through the exchanges comes from the government, not from the policyholders. So this profitability that we're seeing in the exchange-based plans is coming not because people are willingly spending money on these policies. It comes because the federal government is transferring money directly from the treasury to insurance companies. The increase right now, this is about a 63, $64 billion a year program, according to CBO, pre the expansions. If the expansions are made permanent, we will add $200 billion in federal payments to exchange-based insurers over a 10-year period. My friend Tom Miller has a, a joke about the Medicaid program that it's aid to recipients with dependent providers to show how hospitals and others benefit from the Medicaid program, probably more than the recipients. I think we can maybe call the uh, Obamacare plan uh, aid to recipients with dependent insurance companies. This is a way to make an industry profitable, not by cutting premiums, than by raising them. But as you know, the, uh, the open season is going on right now through August 15th. And when I see these ads, Brian, they tell me that 80% of people can get uh, coverage for $10 a month or less. Have these subsidies caused insurance companies to suddenly slash their premiums and give people a great bargain? Well, of course, um, that's not looking at the taxpayer share of that premium expense, uh, uh, as you know, Doug. You know, when I was at the, um, uh, the White House, the Council of Economic Advisors did a report on insurance company profitability, and uh, they did this in 2018, and it had significantly outpaced uh, the growth in the S&P since 2014. Um, largely because of Medicaid expansion, the incentives with the ACA's Medicaid expansion program and how you know states were spending with uh, almost entirely federal money and were being very generous to insurance companies. And if you look at the ACA, it's really mostly about Medicaid expansion, what it's done in the individual market. I mean, we had about 11 to 12 million people in the individual market before the ACA, and they were unsubsidized. They were paying with their own money and they were having an incentive to get coverage that was you know high value to them now uh, we hardly have anybody left in the individual market who's unsubsidized and the number of unsubsidized enrollees is going to decline um, if these uh, subsidies are made uh, uh, permanent um, so we've really just replaced an unsubsidized market with a heavily government subsidized market the problem uh, which you said at the introductory to your marks with the design of these subsidies is that they um, uh, the consumer is insensitive to premium increases. They pay the same amount for a benchmark premium uh, from their own pocket, regardless of what the benchmark premium costs. 
That means insurers have tremendous pricing power. This is a real problem in areas of the country where there's limited um, competition among health insurance companies. And you know, when we lift the cap at 400% of the poverty line, what that did is bring a whole bunch of additional people into this market who aren't sensitive to um, the increase in premiums over time. It really is this subsidy design um, is really, I think, a clear and present danger to the uh, to the federal budget. And I know next we're going to talk about uh, uh, what's potentially going to happen with employer coverage. Yeah, I do want to talk about that. I know you you uh, mentioned it earlier. Uh, CBO, when they looked at the temporary expansion, said that they didn't expect it to have a big influence on employers. In other words, employers weren't going to drop coverage and dump their employees into the exchanges where they get inferior coverage with narrow networks and high cost sharing. The CBO didn't think they were going to do that because the subsidies expire in December of 2022. What do you think happens if Congress adopts the president's proposal through the American Families Plan to make these subsidy increases permanent? I think that $200 billion estimate is going to be low because I think there's going to be in significant incentives for employers to drop coverage. Um, so just sort of to the, the key fundamental thing to understand is that a person only qualifies for a subsidy um, if they're not eligible for a government program, but importantly, if their employer doesn't offer affordable coverage. Um, they put in this so-called firewall in the ACA um, to preclude people who have an offer of affordable employer coverage from purchasing uh, in the exchanges with a uh, premium tax credit. Now, so far, um, there has been some decline in employer coverage because of the ACA, I estimate it's probably about 2 million employees who have replaced employer coverage with subsidized exchange coverage. That's significantly less than what was expected at the time. I think there's two factors because of that. One is the exchanges were just a mess um, in the initial years. I mean, you had all the problems with healthcare.gov, but then you had adverse selection, you had insurers leaving the market, um, and you have mostly narrow network um, uh, plans. You also had an incredibly strong labor market from 2016 through the pandemic where employers felt they really needed to offer um, coverage in order to attract and retain employees. These subsidies, when they are expanded and if they are made permanent, I think are a game changer because they are so large and because they're going to be available to people above 400% of the poverty line. I really think it's going to be a no-brainer for a lot of employers with less than 50 full-time workers to drop coverage. Remember, if there's the employer mandate in place. So if you're an employer with less than 50 employees, there's no obligation for you to offer coverage. There's no tax penalty if you fail to offer coverage. I even think for some employers with more than 50 full-time employees, there's going to be an incentive for them to drop coverage. Um, uh, and Or to make coverage affordable just for hiring workers so they remain on the employer plan um, lower income workers it would be unaffordable they could decline the employer offer and purchase coverage now the employer would still be responsible for a mandate penalty there of a couple thousand dollars but I think for a lot of employers um, uh, that's going to make sense uh, that's going to make sense for them 
That's great. Thanks, Brian. And uh, we have one more slide that sort of will sum up uh, what we've talked about. Uh, and we'll get that slide up here in a second. And um, uh, these are, we titled this, Why Congress Should Not Make ACA Premium Expansion Subsidies uh, Permanent. Going back to the beginning, it's a solution in search of a problem. We didn't have millions of people lose coverage. And uh, whether it, if we did, the answer might not be to expand Obamacare subsidies, but certainly the rationale behind the temporary expansion uh, was utterly flawed. Secondly, we see that most of the budgetary costs is on behalf of people who have insurance. This is a very inefficient way. Uh, to reduce the number of uninsured, if that's the goal, uh, working out to an average of nearly $17,000 per newly insured recipient. Uh, we've shown, as, as Brian ran through the slides, that uh, people making $250,000, $300,000, even $500,000 uh, suddenly get government assistance uh, with, uh, with paying their health insurance premiums, which also seems to be misguided. Uh, we've seen how we would increase government payments to insurers who profitability depends on taxpayer money. So we'll give them more taxpayer money. Uh, one of the real anomalies is that all of the co-sponsors of, of the uh, Medicare for All Act, which wants to abolish private insurance, voted in favor of sending additional government money to insurers in order to make them more profitable. They'll have to explain why they thought that was such a good idea. Next, as Brian just covered, permanent expansion is going to threaten employer-sponsored coverage. Uh, employer coverage tends to be more generous, have broader networks. People will get dumped out of good coverage into Obamacare coverage, which to coin a phrase is junk insurance. It's overpriced. The cost sharing is too high. The, it excludes many centers of excellence from, from networks. Uh, it's Medicaid with a high deductible. It is not good insurance, and, and people may lose their employer-sponsored coverage in favor of Obamacare coverage. Um, next, um, it ex as, as Brian pointed out, it expands the uh, inflationary effect uh, of uh, subsidies on premiums. This will, if you're gonna subsidize people making three, 400,000 a year, uh, if they're not even going to have to pay the full premium, where is the incentive to try to get uh, make uh, ACA coverage more affordable rather than less? And finally, in this age of two, three, four trillion dollar spending bills, I know 200 billion doesn't sound like much, um, but to spend 200 billion more in taxpayer money uh, to achieve these results is, is really a, a bad way to go in our view. Uh, I don't see questions uh, coming up on the chat, uh, so I will thank everyone for their time. Thank us, thanks especially to Brian uh, for his participation and contribution to these events, for Catherine, for uh, Catherine Littell of the Heritage Foundation for organizing it. I hope you found this helpful. Our contact information is, uh, is on the screen if you want to follow up with any questions or comments. Thank you again, and, and uh, appreciate your uh, tuning in.